Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello on Zoom. Can everyone hear me okay? It's very echoey for my position. <laughs> right. um, first of all, um, I'd like to thank Jim for inviting me to give the talk today. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Um, so my talk today is entitled The Science of Zen. Uh, might be a little bit of a strange approach to thinking about Dharma, but um, for me it's incredibly interesting and it's, um, I think there's a couple advantages or, you know, I guess advantages to looking at practice this way. For one, it's just interesting. You know, I find it interesting. You know, other people may not, but it's, you know, I, I think kind of being a little bit of a sciencey nerd, I just always interested how things work, you know, from a scientific perspective. Um, another advantage is, um, and this is more for kind of people who are new to practice, um, you know, practice requires some degree of faith when you get started. You know, it's, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, when you first start paying attention to what's going on in your mind and body, you know, practice actually kind of makes you feel worse, <laughs> you know, when you first start out, which is kind of, you know, surprising for a lot of people. And, um, and, you know, even if you have a little bit of faith, I mean, practice is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it takes a while to start seeing how it um, might have some value in someone's life. You know, what a, what a couple people have reported to me is that, um, you know, seeing that there's some sort of scientific, you know, theory or evidence behind the efficiency of practice, I mean, that helps them practice. I don't think that's really relevant to this group. You know, it's a fairly um, long practicing group. Um, and then uh, the last aspect, and this might be more personal to me than a general principle, but um, there definitely were some aspects of the Buddha Dharma that were just so abstract and so difficult to understand. When I started seeing the correlations between, you know, mind science and Dharma, things kind of like clicked into clicked in for me from a, from a philosophical perspective that where it never did before. And that just might might be my nature because um, you know I'm very um, you know kind of sciencey nerd sort of person. Um, so real quick before I dive in, um, so I'm going to talk, what can science tell us about practice and what can it not, or life in general? Um, what science cannot, or as of yet, has not been able to tell us at all is why we're here. You know, why, why what is awareness? What is consciousness? You know, why, you know, is consciousness tied to a brain? Is consciousness something that's, non-materialistic and not tied to the body? Science has no answers to this, you know, and scientists call this the hard question of consciousness. And they're, they're not even on the playing field, let alone have a, an idea of what's going on. So people put forth some theories, but they, they more like measure consciousness as opposed to um, explain it. So, you know, if you like a little bit of mystery in your practice, you know, we're nowhere near understanding why consciousness itself, you know, you know, you know, the mere wisdom exists. Okay, so there's uh, three areas, at least in my opinion, where um, science has something interesting to say about Buddhism. Um, the first is how and why the brain creates a sense of self. And I want to make a point, you know, pure consciousness is not the same as a sense of self. So science knows really, you know, pretty well now how we have a sense of identity, but it doesn't explain consciousness. Those are different. I mean, I think it's important to keep that in mind. 
um, science has a pretty good understanding of why a sense of self makes us suffer. And it has a pretty good idea of how practice can lead to the cessation of that suffering. Um, I wish I could cover all of this, but uh, I really don't have time. So this talk is really focused on um, how the brain kind of creates a sense of self. And then I touch very briefly on why having a sense of self makes us suffer. So that's the scope. Okay. Um, so before I dive into the details, I kind of want to give a high-level summary of what's in this talk. Um, so we humans experience various levels of discontentment with life because we encounter an unending stream of unmet expectations. That's the basic baseline. Unmet expectations are the source of suffering. Our expectations of how we expect life to go are largely predicated on our beliefs around who we are and how we think the world should work in order for us to experience comfort and safety. The totality of these beliefs can be called our self-identity. This conceptual construct of our self-identity is a necessary part of our species-specific survival strategy. All animals have a unique survival strategy that ultimately revolves around perceiving the world and then deciding how to interact with it. The central component of our decision-making survival strategy is centered around cooperation and competition with other people. To work or compete with other people, we need to have a narrative sense of who we are and then be able to communicate this to other people. The Buddha long ago realized that our self-identity-based survival strategy could be broken up, broken up into discrete and interrelated components called the five aggregates. These components are the physical body, our ability to have a felt sense of self in other or subject and object, our ability to experience pleasure and discomfort, our ability to perceive and recognize objects in the world, and our ability to conceptualize the world and then make decisions on how to interact with it. And these conceptualizations, conceptualizations are largely filtered by our sense of identity and its relationship to other people. Underpinning this whole process is our craving for pleasure and then our grasping for that pleasure. Discontentment with life results because expectations to feel good are doomed to frequently fail due to the unpredictable and ever-changing nature of the world that we live in. We are also uniquely designed to constantly worry about this, even if things are not kind of going wrong in the moment. You know, we spend a lot of times worrying about what's going on in the future. The neurological underpinnings of these processes are, for one, the brain's default mode network, and you'll hear me mention that a lot today. It, um, it kind of underlines our basic ability to have dualistic conceptualizations and a sense of self-identity. It's kind of the core system we're going to talk about. A class of neurotransmitters called endorphins, they signal pleasure and unpleasant sensations in our brain. And lastly, a neurotransmitter, I'm sure everyone's heard of it, called dopamine, which signals craving and motivation in our brains. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about dukkha or dissatisfaction. To begin our exploration of Buddhism and science, let's touch base with the core purpose of Buddhism. It's the cessation of dukkha, the cessation of dissatisfaction. The typical translation for dukkha is suffering, um, but I prefer dissatisfaction because I think it better includes some of the more subtle aspects of dukkha. That's, you know, suffering is just such a strong word that, you know, it kind of leaves out some of the more subtle dukkha aspects such as, you know, boredom, annoyance or yearning um, and you know um, you know suffering just you know makes people think of like severe depression or incredible injury but 
you know, most of the dukkha, the average person feels at any given moment is usually, you know, it's a little more subtle than that. So I, I like dissatisfaction. The Zen teacher, Jeff Shore, translates dukkha as dis-ease, which I think is also a really good translation. All right, so uh, the Buddha has this to say about dissatisfaction in the first noble truth. Now this, monks, is the noble truth of dissatisfaction. Birth is dissatisfaction. Aging is dissatisfaction. Illness is dissatisfaction. Death is dissatisfaction. Union with what is displeasing is dissatisfaction. Separation from what is pleasing is dissatisfaction. Not to get what, what, what one wants is dissatisfaction. In brief, the five aggregates of grasping are dissatisfaction. Let's highlight the last two points in this passage. The first is not to get what one wants is dissatisfaction. And the other is five, the five aggregates subject to grasping are dissatisfaction. And the rest of this talk is kind of largely um, focus on those two points. All right, so let's dive into the five aggregates here. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the core teachings of the Buddha is the idea in the implications of the five aggregates. Now, a lot of people say that, you know, the four noble truths are the core teachings of Buddha, but really the, the four noble truths are about the five aggregates in, in how to work with them and ultimately break them up or see through them. The five aggregates, which are known, also known as nama rupa, or name and form, are the physical and mental elements that create the illusion of self-identity. Using the terms as they are commonly translated, the five aggregates are form, sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. Whenever you hear the Buddha talk about name and form, or these five aggregates, you can substitute in your mind the illusion of self-identity. They really are synonymous in the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha often makes this connection um, explicit. For example, in a sutta called the Sama Napas Sana Sutta, or the Ways of Regarding Sutra, it makes the point that a core human illusion is the equivalency of self-identity in the five aggregates. So here's a quote from the sutra. A person who is not awakened regards the body as self, the self as having a body, body as being in the self, or the self as being in the body. And then he goes on to make the same points about all the aggregates, such as feelings, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. Then he says, so this way of regarding arises. It occurs to a non-awakened person to think, I am. We can see here that the five aggregates constitute parts of an illusionary self-identity. The main thesis of Zen Buddhism is the Heart Sutra, and it's safe to say that the main thesis of the Heart Sutra are its first few lines. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that the all five saw that all five aggregates are empty, and thus relieved all suffering. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. Sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are all like this. The basic idea here is that our experience of a seamless sense of self-identity is an illusion, and seeing through the illusion is how we transcend dissatisfaction. The reason these five aggregates exist is that they work together to create our self-identity in a way that allows us to survive in the world as social individuals. The Buddha explores this idea of survival in the Athi Raga Sutta, which can be, can be translated as where there is passion sutra. This sutta, in the sutta, the Buddha is discussing what is required to be born into this world and survive. 
These requirements are the nutrients needed by existence. One of these nutrients is actually food, you know, the kind of the core nutrient. Here's what the Buddha says about the relationship between food and self-identity. If there is desire, relishing, and craving for food, for solid food, vijnana, or dualistic consciousness, becomes established there and grows. Where vijnana is established and grows, name and form, or in other words, self-identity, are conceived. In other words, this physical need for survival is met through a craving, dualist, through craving, dualistic consciousness, and the illusion of self-identity. More specifically, these five aggregates exist in order to allow us to perceive phenomena in the world and then decide how to interact with this phenomena in order to survive. Now let's look at each of these five aggregates, otherwise known as the self-identity illusion, in detail. The first aggregate is raga, or form. Is it raga or raja? Tim? Is it rupa? Oh, sorry, it's rupa. I'm glad I asked. Uh, from the perspective of science, there are really three points that are important to bring up here. Every living creature has a survival strategy that has been selected for during evolution. Creatures that have brains have them because they need to move around in the world and interact with, interact with objects and phenomena. And all creatures with brains have core drives to survive and procreate. And here's a really important point. Brains are extremely biologically expensive. If an organism does not move around and make decisions, it does not need a brain. If you don't move around and make decisions, you don't have a brain. It's just, that's just kind of the core axiom of biology. And there's this aquatic worm that kind of really illustrates this point. In its first phase of its life, it kind of swims around, you know, making decisions, interacting with the world, perceiving the world. And then finally it finds a rock that it likes and kind of lands on that rock, anchors itself to it, and, and spends the rest of its life anchored to that rock. Here's the interesting thing. Since it no longer moves around, it, desour, it devours its own brain. It like digests its own brain. It does, since it's not moving around anymore, it doesn't need a brain. And um, scientists always like to make a joke here. You know, that's, this is tenure in the university once you're <laughs> kind of stuck. You don't need um, a brain anymore. Okay, let's talk about the um, second um, aggregate now. It's um, Vedana which uh, is pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones. Many translations, including in San Francisco Zen Center's Heart Sutra, um, translate Vedana as sensations. Uh, scientists typically use the term uh, feeling tones to describe the idea, and I, I like that as a translation. I think it best explains the concept. Vedana feeling tones are either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Feeling tones evolve so that organisms can receive real-time positive or negative feedback on their actions as they move around. At a core level, this is the keep doing this or don't do this signaling in the brain. It can also manifest as the let this happen or don't let this happen signaling in the brain. These reward and punishment experiences are mediated by a group of chemicals called endorphins, and they act on what the scientists call hedonic hotspots in the brain. While endorphins are commonly known as pleasure chemicals, there is also um, opio opioid receptors in the brain that create aversive or dysphoria type experience as well. So, you know, um, you know, good or bad, pleasant or un unpleasant, they're all mediated by these endorphins um, in pretty much the same areas of the brain. Um, so in short, we think of Vedana as the liking or disliking part of the brain. So now um, let's take a quick detour 
going through the five aggregates and look at tanha or craving. If vedana is liking and disliking, then tanha is craving, or tanha or craving is wanting or not wanting. It's not always obvious to people, but liking is very different than wanting. Disliking is very different than not, not wanting. If we pay attention, we can see that liking and wanting are ex experientially different. You know, they're very distinct. For example, you, a lot of times you want something that you don't really like, and a lot of times you like something that you don't really want. You know, I mean, the, probably the, the classic case are, you know, people who are addicted to drugs. They really want those drugs, but often hate them, you know. They don't, they're no longer producing happy experiences for them, but they still want them. That's the kind of the extreme situation that, that kind of drives home that point. And in fact, these experiences are driven by completely different brain regions and different neurotransmitters. While liking and not liking are driven by endorphins, wanting or not wanting is mediated by the neurotransmitter dopamine. We can see that dopamine, we can see dopamine as the wanting and not wanting chemical. And despite what scientists used to think and what the general public still largely believes, dopamine has nothing to do with pleasure or liking, as we already mentioned. It has everything to do with wanting or craving. The dopamine system generally fires when things are a surprise. When something is a surprise and has a noticeable pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone, dopamine marks it as important and will drive us to either want or not want the, that experience in, in the future. This craving through dopamine is what causes us to act. It motivates us to interact with the world in a way that increases pleasant feeling tones and avoids unpleasant feeling tones. It alerts us to the possibility of action and creates a sense of tension that needs to be released through that action. In order to interact with the world in this way, we need to be able to perceive and recognize it. So let's talk about that next. Samjna, which is the next of the five aggregates, is often translated as simply perception, but this can be a little misleading. Samjna is not just perceiving, but it's also recognizing and categorizing the world. In the interest of time, this is one of my favorite concepts in both Buddhism and science, but um, in the interest of time, I'm actually not going to dive into this. This talk is already maybe a little too long, but um, a really interesting about, point about this is we don't see all of the details of the world and then recognize it. We see very small percentage, high level aspects of the world, and then we basically make a best guess, you know, um, of what it is, and then um, then we kind of move on. And that's why, you know, you're driving down the road and you see a bear. Well, actually, it's a boulder, you know. Or, you know, maybe that shadow in the alley, you think maybe a mugger is really a trash can. Or, you know, that flashlight was really your kid's um, light toy lightsaber. And so, you know, it's, the brain's making a high-level best guesses about the world. And, and it, as it turns out, the brain does this at all levels, but that's beyond the scope of this talk, so I, I really won't go on that, about that anymore. Okay, then let, now let's look at the fourth of the five skandhas, which is samskara. We've come now to the crux of this five aggregate system. Remember this five aggregate system of self-identity exists in order to help us move around and decide how to interact with the world in order to increase pleasure and de decrease unpleasantness. Samskara is the deciding part of the system. Samskara is translated with variant, various terms such as formations, volitional formations, dispositions, conditioned things, determinations, or fabrications. These are correct translations from a purely linguistic perspective, but don't quite get at what the word means in the context of the five aggregates, at least in my opinion. If you look at this usage context in the five aggregates in the suttas, you'll find phrases such as directed thought and evaluation, intention 
and tendency towards. The basic idea involves intention or volition. So of the trans traditional translations, volitional formations is probably the best. I think it's a little bit clunky though. I prefer motivated intention. What is the underlying motivating motivation of the intention? Is to experience pleasant feeling tones and to avoid unpleasant feeling tones. It, it really always comes back to that as far as brain and Buddha Dharma goes. It's the, the illusion part of Buddha Dharma, at least. These are fundamental dictates of survival that nature gives us. So let's kind of review at this point how these all fit together. And then going down the chain of what causes us to decide and act. First, we have the ability to experience pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones. Second, and this is Vedana, Vendana. Second, we have the ability to want or not want based on this pleasure or lack of pleasure. This is tanha or craving. Third, we have the ability to perceive and recognize objects and phenomena of the world. This is samjana. And finally, we have the ability to have motivated intention to interact with or avoid these objects and phenomena. This is samskara. This is how these capabilities work together to allow us to make decisions and interact with the world. A key brain region that is involved with this intentional decision-making is called the central executive network. It is the network that analyzes situations and makes us, it helps us make intentional decisions. It allows us to look analytically and dispassionately at our options and then decide what to do. If you're familiar with Star Trek, can anyone think of the actor who might best represent this brain? Spock, right. So this is the Spock part of our brain. This coldly logical aspect of decision-making, however, is not the only part of our brain that makes decisions. In order for our brains to control our behavior and thinking, it needs to be able to make use of what we've learned about the world in the past and then conceptualize how it works. It also needs to take feelings into account. In order to decide on how to interact with the objects and phenomena of the world, our brains need to be able to create an elaborate conceptual model of it. Scientists call this model a schema. The best traditional Buddhist term, I think, that could encapsulate this idea is papancha. It is almost always translated as conceptualization or conceptual proliferation. You know, m most of my talk kind of is covering, you know, kind of the early Buddhist suttas view of practice, you know, what's commonly called the first turning of the Dharma. But what's interesting is conceptualization is really not fully fleshed out until you get to the Mahayana aspects of Buddhism. So this is one area where I'm kind of diverging from the first turning type teachings. The brain systems that create and process our models of the world is the default mode network. The default mode network engages in many cognitive tasks, including this ability to conceptually model our world and ourselves. To help us understand this idea, let's look at some examples of conceptual models that we might have. The United States uses the electoral voting system when voting for president. That's one conceptual model we might have. Blue and yellow make green. It's another conceptual model. And then, we, then here's one. If I'm helpful, people will like me. This last conceptualization is an example of a type of conceptualization that is the most relevant to Buddhism. In other, ones, other words, ones that are involved dualistic self-referential ideas. We will explore the relationship between this type of conceptualization and a sense of self later in this talk. But first, let's look at how the default mode network can run simulations of our future. A big part of the default mode network's ability to conceptualize is its amazing ability to understand the concept of time. Much of this conceptualization involves simulations of future possible scenarios. 
This ability is used widely when we are in samskara or motivated intention decision-making mode. In order to decide what to do, we need to be able to project our imagination into the future and simulate potential outcomes and then imagine what they'll feel like. This imagined vendana feeling tone of potential future scenarios are the primary variables in deciding what we do. Predicted future feeling tones are largely what motivate us to behave. How does this default mode network predict possible future feeling tones? It accesses what can be called the feeling tone database in our brain. It could also be called the reward value database, and that's actually what scientists call it. If you're interested, the brain region evolved is something called the orbitofrontal cortex. But just for simplicity, we'll call it the feeling tone database. Okay, now let's go back and look at the last of the five aggregates, vijnana. It's often translated simply as consciousness, but dualistic consciousness or dualistic self-awareness is more accurate. The, the prefix, means split or separate. Shnana, jnana, means knowledge, awareness, or consciousness. So vijnana, dualistic consciousness. Dualistic consciousness, by definition, can only exist in the context of one of the six sense spaces, such as hearing, seeing, tasting, etc. It's when our minds meet phenomena or objects through the senses that dualistic consciousness will come into being. It's inherently dualistic. Why does this type of dualistic consciousness exist? It's because without this raw ability of subject and object, we can't perceive objects in the world. It's, the, it's, our, it's our innate ability to, to perform this type of perception. Um, the neural substrates for these dualistic consciousness awarenesses are it's a combination of the default mode network, which we've already talked about, and another network called the salience network. Having looked at the five aggregates, now let's kind of let's review them again to see how they all fit together. We've not quite gotten to how a sense of self kind of emerges from this, but um, let's see where we are. Um, first, we have a brain and a body that exists in order to allow us to make decisions and move around in the world. This is rupa, our body. Second, we have the ability to experience pleasure and displeasure. This is vedana, or feeling tones. Third, we have the ability to want or not want, based on this pleasure. This is tanha, or craving, and this is dopamine. Fourth, we have the ability to perceive and recognize objects and phenomena of the world. This is samjana. Fifth, we have the ability to have motivated intention to interact or avoid these objects and phenomena. This is samskara. We have the capacity to conceptualize the world into complex models of reality. Making all this possible is our innate precognitive ability to have a, a sense of object and subject. This is Vishnana. Remembering that according to the Buddha, the five aggregates are essentially synonymous with a sense of self, it makes sense to stop here and ask, are all these elements that we have explored so far enough to kind of add up to make a sense of self? From one point of view, yes. Most, or perhaps all, animals manifest craving in the five aggregates in a way that includes some sort of cognizance. Even a lobster, for example, would experience these processes of craving in the five aggregates when the content, within the concept, context of some sort of object and subject dualism. But would a lobster have an actual sense of self similar to what we do? This is a complex and nuanced topic, but it is fairly safe to say that a lobster does not have a sense of, health, sense of self the way a human does. A human-like sense of self is multi-layered, but one, one defining characteristic of it is it must include something that we can call a continuous sense of self. That is, a felt sense that we have existed in the past, that we exist now, and that we will exist in the future. A continuous sense of, continuous sense of self 
is possible due to the memory centers of the brain. Brain regions such as the hippocampus and parahippocampus interact with the default mode network to produce this, produce this continuous sense of self. It is very much a felt sense, and in many ways it's precognitive. It comes before thinking. While this continuous sense of self is a big part of what makes us human, makes us feel like a self, it isn't the whole picture. The next layer on the stack of mind processes are what could be called a narrative sense of self. A narrative sense of self is, is similar to the continuous self, but it includes a cognitive or thinking element to it. The narrative sense of self is where we begin to have a sense of self-identity. And this is where we kind of get to the meat of this whole process. The narrative sense of self is built upon something called autobiographical memory. Autobiographical memory is a combination of episodic memory and declarative memory. Episodic memory is our ability to envision particular scenarios that we're part of. It's almost like a video or an image capture system of key moments of our life. You know, it's, it's actually a visual or, you know, it's the, sen you know, the senses being recorded. Declarative memory is essentially a huge data structure of facts that we think are true. Some examples are, I am pretty, getting older is harder, is hard, Dharma talks are boring, hard work pays off, life is not fair, I like Rocky Road ice cream, I'm gonna die, or McDonald's food makes me physically uncomfortable. These are all declarative facts, you know, so declarative memory are facts. We saw earlier how the default mode network conceptually models reality into what scientists call schema. The default mode, default mode networks with, works with our autobiographical memories to create a sense of self-identity within the schema. Our self-identity is the story that we tell ourselves in the world about who we are and how the world works. Our sense of narrative self-identity becomes the contextual filter through which we view the world and make decisions. As we mentioned at the beginning of the talk, our specific species survival strategy in making decisions and in how to interact with the world largely revolves around competing and cooperating with people. It's something unique to very few animals, humans being one of them. Lots of animals like fish, you know, they'll school together, but there's not, not much decision-making. It's like, you go this way, I'll go that way too. Whereas a few animals like humans and dolphins and other apes, you know, we have a very complex social structure and this is where this kind of dynamic comes into play. You know, aside from these the animals I just mentioned, it's fair to ask, you know, if, if other animals get by with a simple, you know, object and subject self in their five aggregate system, you know, why does our five aggregate system have to include such a complex sense of self-identity? How does a sense of self-identity help? If other animals get by without it, why would we need one? Every form of life has a specific strategy for survival. Our species strategy is extremely reliant on individual humans coming together in various types of groups to work together or compete. We are extremely social animals and our social structures are very hierarchical and complex. What scientists are increasingly realizing is that a sophisticated sense of identity and even self-recognition is only needed when a creature is very social in this manner. When social animals such as us need to make decisions for survival, these decisions are frequently pass through the filter of and include other individuals and our self-identity. As a result, very large percentages of our self-aggregate decision-making tends to involve decisions around who we are and how we fit into social dynamics. 
Our sense of narrative identity allows us to figure out what tribe we belong to, how we fit into it as a helpful member, what our status is within the group, and also very importantly, it lets us figure out who is not in our tribe and who might be a competitor or a threat. Our self-identity allows us to communicate this narrative story to other people in both implicit and explicit ways. So to kind of sum up everything we've talked to up to this point, let's kind of go through the list again. So first we have a body and a brain that exists in order to allow us to make decisions and move around in the world. This is Rupa. Second, we have the ability to experience pleasure or displeasure. This is Vedana or feeling tones. Third, we have the ability to want or not want based on pleasure or displeasure. This is Tanha or craving. Fourth, we have the ability to perceive and recognize the objects and phenomena of the world. This is Samjna. Fifth, we have the ability to have motivated intention to interact or avoid objects and phenomena. This is Samskara. Sixth, we have the capacity to conceptualize the world into complex models of reality. This is Papancha. Seventh, making all this possible is our innate precognitive ability to have a felt sense of subject and object in the world. This is Vijnana. Eight, our brains construct a sense of self out of our ability to perceive a continuous sense of self and uses autobiographical memory to construct a sense of self-identity. This self-identity is the filter in which we view the world and ourselves and use these beliefs in our decision-making. And lastly, our self-identity is largely needed because humans have a complex social survival strategy. To work with and against other people, we have to know who we are and we have to have motivated intention when we're in motivated attention mode, the implications of other people are key variables in our decision-making. And underneath all of this, and kind of underpinning all of this, is our core survival need to experience pleasant feeling tones and avoid unpleasant feeling tones. The neurological underpinnings of social and self-identity cognition is, once again, the default mode network. It creates a continuous sense of self and uses this ability to dualistically conceptualize reality in order to build a sense of narrative self-identity on top of it. Okay, I'm kind of coming to the end here. So um, we have talked about craving a few times, but we've not formally defined upadana or grasping or clinging. This is a very rich topic to dive into, but in the interest of time, I'm just gonna make two quick points about it. For one, grasping or clinging happens when we add a self-referential layer of expectations over craving. It's the expectation that we can continue to hold on to sources of our dopamine-driven craving. The grasping process is driven, again, by the default mode network. Okay, so now let's look at how a grasping narrative sense of self-identity causes dukkha or dissatisfaction. The default mode network is, a very is very sophisticated in its ability to model the world in a complex manner. As a result, we have equally sophisticated and complex narrative expectations of what, to th of what we think we need in order to be happy and safe. If we peel back layers of our grasping narrative and self-referential expectations, we will always eventually get down to the core layer of feeling tone, Vendana, Vedana. We get down to the need to experience pleasant hedonic tones and the need to avoid, avoid unpleasant hedonic tones. This is what it always comes down to. The five aggregate self-referential narrative thinking always has its root goal to optimize feelings in this manner. We want to feel good and avoid feeling bad. 
We become unwitting slaves to these feeling to these feeling drives and constantly grasp at the need to fulfill them, often with significant cost. Remembering the first noble truth, we experience dissatisfaction when we don't get what we want. We experience dissatisfaction when our feeling-driven sense of identity has its expectations dashed. To help structure our understanding of this idea, let's look at the five categories of not getting what we want, or five categories of not getting what we want, that may lead to dissatisfaction. These categories are the hedonic treadmill, dopamine keeps us subtly dissatisfied unless we are experiencing new and exciting things. We layer narrative expectations over this tension and, and set expectations that can fail. For example, my one of my big ones in this, in my Achilles heel in life seems to be get it standing in line at the supermarket. I have this magical ability to always get in the slowest line. It's pretty sure I could scientifically prove this. And, you know, if you think about it, there's really nothing wrong with standing there, right? But, but my dopamine wants me to move and get things done and it creates this narrative attention like, oh, why am I in the slowest lane? You know, why is this person not have their credit card ready? You know, and it, it's, um, this hedonic treadmill is one of the core dukkha narrative, uh, dukkha sources that in a lot of ways is hidden to a lot of us, I think. All right, so the next category is physical pain. We transform physical pain into suffering by adding the I wish this would stop hurting type of, of expectation. Um, you know, people who are new to practice or don't practice often can't wrap their mind around this, but there really is a fundamental difference between pain and suffering. You know, pain is just an energy. Suffering comes when we wrap a self-identity expectation narrative over that pain. You know, I want this to stop hurting type of type of narrative. Um, another category that causes dukkha or, or dissatisfaction is um, overly rigid conceptualization. Our complex conceptualizations basically invent expectations that are hard or impossible to fill. You know, one of them is I don't want to get sick, grow old, and die. You know, that's a pretty hard conceptualization to fulfill. But other ones are more subtle, like. Um, I hope my computer doesn't fail during my Dharma talk or, um, you know, or if I get this car, people are going to respect me and see that I'm, you know, a high class individual. And we create the, it's, it's all a narrative conceptualization and just, just by their nature, you know, a lot of them fail. You know, some of them work out, makes us feel great, but um, it's not always the case. Another category is rumination, where we worry uncontrollably about the future. Um, I've talked a couple times about the default mode network, and it was initially called the default mode network, even though it's much more that we realize it's much more than this now, is what they did is they were doing science experiments on people, you know, like, what does the brain do when you're doing cursive, or what does the brain do when you're singing, you know, and in order to figure out what the brain's doing when you're doing something, they need a baseline, and then you then you do the thing, and then you compare the baseline to the thing to see what the thing does. And what they found out was the brain at rest is an incredibly active animal or brain. And uh, what and what they figured out is when your brain's not stuck on an action in front of you, 
it ruminates, it thinks, it plans the future, it runs simulations, it relitigates conversations in the past. So if you have them again, you can do better next time. It, you know, it, sometimes it does silly things like, you know, you know, why didn't the why didn't the hobbits just fly to Mordor? You know, stuff like that. Um, but usually, but we spend a lot of time worrying about the future, and um, and that's and that's another source of um, a dukkha, and that's also driven. All these are driven by the default mode network. And then the, the last category of dukkha causing thinking is um, we talked a, hit a, hit on this a little earlier is um, when our needs to feel pleasure and avoid discomfort overrule the central executive network's logical analysis. In other words, um, you know, let's say someone that I'm close to says something snippy to me, right? The logical thing is like, you know what, they're just having a bad day. I'm not going to take it personally. I want them to feel good anyway. But yeah, maybe the, you know, the narrative part of my brain says like, you know what, I shouldn't be treated that way. Who are they? How dare they? Who do they think? Right. You know, so you're, you know, and that's all driven because you, the feeling of being talked to that way and the implications of it hurt, right. Or, or depriving you of pleasure. And so you start this, you know, and so this, you know, our need to feel good overrules our Spock brain. And, uh, you know, a lot of dukkha is driven by that. All right. So, just to kind of sum everything up here. Um, so humans, we experience a fairly widespread, uh, widespread amount of discontentment in our life. Our expectations of how we expect life to go are largely created by our beliefs around who we are and how we think the world should work in order for us to experience comfort, happiness, and safety. The totality of these beliefs is our self-identity. Our conceptual beliefs regarding our self-identity it's a necessary part of our species-specific five aggregate survival strategy, our decision-making strategy. Central, the central theme to our decision-making strategy, and thus our self-identity, is centered around cooperation and competition with other people. As we decide how to navigate life, our underlying endorphin-driven dictate is to maximize pleasure and minimize discomfort. Discontentment with life comes because our expectations to feel good are doomed to frequently fail due to the unpredictable and ever-changing nature of the world we find ourselves in. And the core neurological drivers of this entire process are endorphins that enable us to feel good and bad or like and dislike things, dopamine that, make, that makes us crave objects and scenarios and drives us to action, and the default mode network which underpins our sense of self-identity and it dualistically conceptualizes our world and causes us to grasp and clings at objects that we crave. And that's it. So if anyone has any questions or comments or complaints, that would be a good time, or you could just wrap things up. Jim? So in the Heart Sutra, we should now say, all five aggregates are the default mode network. Right. I And I actually sent an email to um, San Francisco board and they rejected me. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but what it actually does say is that, uh, you know, the five aggregates are empty, which you pointed out. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, 
it's just important, I think, to reinforce that this wonderful description has no self either. Right. Yeah, thank you. Mary, thank you so much uh, for your talk. I really enjoyed it, um, and you just skimmed the surface. But it just occurred to me while you're talking that, um, and I'm thinking in terms of uh, my, my Buddhist practice around self uh-huh. and, and no self. And, and that comes, I'm trying to think about it now in terms of what you were just describing. It seems to me it's the extreme because when I'm really looking into this form as having no self, I can only do that when I see the radical interconnections that I have with everyone in this room, with this building, with the people who are homeless on the street, with the bigger and the wider, with Donald Trump. Uh-huh. That, that's part of my identity, too. And that, to me, is that radical sense or path towards trying to um, exist or be in, in, in no self. Uh-huh. And that's not explained in my scientific, other than being at the extreme of being social. I mean, that would be one way to define that, extreme sociality. Right. And, and like I said, this talk just talks about why we have a self and why that can suck sometimes. It doesn't no. talk about how we can oh, I'm not asking. unwind that. No, I'm well, not asking. But, but what you're asking really hits at that. And I mean, the reality is the truth, you know, absolute reality is that your true self is you are, we are inter- interconnected. You are interconnected with pe- people on the street. We are interconnected with Donald Trump. It's our self-identity is the aspect that narrows and constricts reality into a workable illusion, right? And in a sense of self, the self-illusion, you know, in my, in my early years of practice, I thought like, oh, I still have a sense of self. I, I suck at this, you know. And, um, you know, self is bad. And now I've kind of, I've gotten to the point where I kind of see a sense of self or very specifically a self-identity as kind of like the immune system, right? You really wouldn't want to live without one. But it also has some downsides like, you know, arthritis and, you know, um, allergies, right? And and so a sense of self-identity is kind of like a double-edged sword. Like, I really wouldn't want to not have one. I couldn't imagine... You know, I, I don't want to be a worm stuck on a rock. But at the same time, it does have its limitations. And practice is, in my mind, is seeing through that self-identity so it's a tool and we're no longer enslaved to it. It's just it's one of it's just something available to us that's yeah. not ruling us like it, it may have did at, at yeah. earlier in our lives. Thank you. And it may be that no self is the ultimate illusion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, any conceptualization ultimately is illusion, you know, and I mean, uh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Just take both. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow, that was a heck of a talk. Thank oh, you very much. Thank you. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, there's so much information coming, but every, you know, Every moment, a couple minutes, I thought, oh, that's right, that's, I know about that. Uh-huh. Um, and I hope it'll be available uh, in, in um, 
in written form. I mean, I would love to have. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to send out my notes. Yeah. Um, you may have not noticed, but I read my talk. Okay. Um, a couple, uh, two things came to mind. Uh, a few things came to mind. But what is what is uh, what does hedonic mean? Hedonic. It means uh, a feeling, right? So they call it hedonic feeling tones to differentiate between. Because colloquially, when we say feelings, we think in terms of like sadness, happiness, excitement, right? You know, which really are emotions, right? So scientists just in an attempt to be precise, they call it hedonic feeling tones, which really, there's three of them. There's pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. It's, it's, it's synonymous with, with Vedana. Yeah. Um, something occurred to me when, so I, um, question. I think you said that um, strong self, sense of self-identity is a, prerequisite for uh, or function of complex social organization. Yeah, that's what scientists have come to believe, definitely. How about social, highly organized social insects? Um, yeah, so an ant is extremely um, deterministic or predictive of its behavior. It, it, ants don't make a lot of decisions. They, you know, you can totally map out algorithmically with a program an ant's behavior like you could create a robot ant and do a real ant, and they'll exact and act in the exact same way every term. You know, it's very deterministic. Um, a sense of self is a decision-making tool ultimately. So if you're not making decisions and you're not conceptualizing, you don't need a complex sense of self-identity. And remember, that's distinct from awareness, right? Just the raw sense of being alive in the, in the sense that we can we we can feel it was really kind of built into. You could say there's, you know, the, kind of the raw mirror consciousness, you know, that, you know. That we share with an ant? That, well, I, I would argue it goes beyond even living things, you know. I, I think it's an intrinsic part of the universe. You know, I mean, I can't know for sure, but that's what right. it certainly feels like, you know. And then there's the um, Vijnana, which is a, just a raw ability to sense subject and object. You know, I feel like I'm here and you seem to be there. You know, you're a thing making sound, and I'm a thing perceiving sound. You're a thing having light bounced off you into my eyes, right? So that's Vijnana. And then there's self-identity, which is like the narrative, right? And, and you don't really need that narrative unless, A, you can even conceive of past and future, right? And B, you know, you, you need to, like, if I'm going to interact with you as a person, I need to know who I am, right? Because otherwise, how do I know how you fit into my dynamics? Or how do I know you're one of the good guys? You know, like what if you're a trumper? You know, or something. You know, you know, like. Um, and did I answer your question? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, ants have developed a different way of um, a different and deterministic way right. of yeah. They don't have to taking decide, advantage really. of yeah. social organization. Right. You know, and it's it's just like you know, fish that swarm. You know, their algorithm is, if you go left, I may go left. You go right, I'm going to go right. And we're going to look like one thing, and it's not going to be able to, and we're going to shine light in the tuna's eyes, and it's not going to know which one of us is which, right? I mean, that's the full extent of their social dynamics. Whereas our social dynamics are just incredibly rich, and especially since we've um, become agricultural. And I think there's good evidence to say that 
when we switched to being agriculture, that we're almost like a new species at that point because our, our the complexity of our social organism explodes, you know, tremendously. Where before, you know, you, you made spears or you made pottery or you hunted or you farmed, but, but now you can be like, you know, you're the grain expect, inspector from section five and, you know, make sure the king's, you know, I mean, just like the special, the level of specialization explodes. And so our sense of self-identity needs to explode with it. So we just know where we fit into the world. I was just going to add the... Can you take the microphone just for the benefit of the people on the internet? Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, well, I was just wanted to make a comment that, yeah, uh, insects might have hierarchical orders and they might seem complex, but they don't have written communication. So we have way powerful more tools than, than insects. So. Yeah, thank you. So, um, oh. oh. Barbara, go ahead, please. Thank you. Sure. Um, thank you. What an evocative talk, Barry. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be up all night with this. Thank you very much. Um, and you just, um, the question that arose, oh, first of all, I love dukkha and dissatisfaction as opposed to dukkha always being suffering. I think that's a really... That's very uh, profound in itself. And I, you just touched on just a moment ago, uh, which was my, what I'm curious about, and that's the evolution of the construct of self-identity. And you touched on it when you just mentioned um, as our social structures, conventions have evolved, the sense of self-identity has just exploded. And and I think that's a that's an interesting topic as well. And Curious if you can point us to places where we can read about that in particular. Sure. Um, there's actually a book, of, I think it's called A Sense of Self. Um, I'd be happy to kind of just follow up with a song of white email with some reading materials. Um, you know, mo most of the books are scientific in nature and not Dharma, but um, that talk about this stuff. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it's just called A Sense of Self is the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's really only in the last um, five years or so, I think our scientists really at a place where we where they're starting to understand the sense of of identity. You know, I, I've been interested in this um, uh, scientific view of practice. I mean, I mean, real, literally for thirty years now, and you know, I'd always just see what's available, and I mean, this the this the science wasn't there. It's it's really only you know, really since I'd say 2017 that um, scientists really have started to get in a sense of how we construct a sense of self. I mean, it's, it's literally cutting edge in science. I mean, I couldn't have given this talk five years ago. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I, I um, well, I just, some of the thoughts that have come up for me are, are this understanding that we don't really have just one self. Mm -hmm that actually we are many selves and that oftentimes our conscious conceptualization of self actually prevents us from knowing all of us, all of ourselves. And that that's part of the suffering too in the sense that I could think of myself, well, I never get angry. Mm -hmm. And so when I get angry, 
then my, my conscious self can't see that because it goes against who I think I am. And so then the suffering is caused by that um, denial, I guess, that defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet if you don't, and that's sort of an unconscious mechanism. It's I, not I think on a conscious level. I think it's an excellent point. Thank you. But it's still functioning. And then the other thing is, is that I often feel like I have like this little director in my head mm-hmm. that thinks it knows, mm-hmm. you know, what I should do or what's best for me or whatever. And it's just sort of interesting to me because it mostly doesn't know. Um, so it's also a question of who's in charge. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, that's unfortunately one of the things I had to painfully cut out of my talk, but you know, the sense of volitional self is a big one. And, you, you know, when I talk to people about the stuff, generally what I get the biggest pushback on is when I try to suggest them that they, they're not really in charge of their lives in the way they think they are, you know, that, you know, you, you're not really making the decisions you think you are. And, you know, and I'll kind of lay out the facts and, and I, even for me, I felt really uncomfortable when I had a, wrap my mind around it, you know what I mean? Well, and even setting intentions, like yeah. sometimes I'll set an intention like, well, I'm not going to have my breakfast until after I exercise. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, I'm eating a banana. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, <laughs> the, the volitional sense of self, I mean, could be a Dharma talk all on itself. And yeah, yeah I mean, it's... Um, and, and it's also who's in charge. I mean, who is making that? Something's still making a decision. To eat the banana. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nothing we have control over. Yeah, yeah that's an important point. Uh, because uh, we were reading recently, you know, the, the same thing you read about the this eight eight uh, sources of suffering, you know, aging, mm-hmm. old age, uh, oh, excuse me, disease, death, and so forth. And the last one is, um, you know, basically sometimes you read it uh, in short, um, the entire the the whole mess of the five aggregates is suffering. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the way uh, Shiohaka Okamura translated in something we were reading is. In short, um, the five aggregates cannot be controlled. That's the way he translates it. They're, they can't be controlled. Yes. And so it goes along with what you were saying. Yeah, I really like that. And, uh, regarding self. You're, you're not on. You can't tell me what's going to Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and then, uh, uh, yeah, regarding self, that's because it is a, uh, yeah, I can talk a lot. Yeah, the point is, is if you, if you, if you, if you believe Jung, there is the self. The self encompasses the shadow and the personal self and the archetypes. So, and those archetypes are deep, deep consciousness or unconsciousness. And uh, yeah, and the shadow is you know, obviously there, working around. So, so yeah. I just, I just, anyways, I just you know I had to say something because that whole thing about you know I'm starting to realize you know because there are actually I just want to. I just, there are some neuroscientists that take the point of view that actually everything is unconscious. That just me right now saying this, there's something unconsciously that motivated me to take this from you and say these words. That I had no conscious, there was no, con, it was not a conscious act. I'm like, I like to think I did that, but you no, know, there's something else going on. So I guess I'll shut up. One way to kind of get a sense of this is everyone, what's your next thought going to be? You don't know, right? You don't know what your next thought's going to be. It just floats from somewhere, right? I didn't decide what I was going to think. Or if I'm choosing, when I'm choosing, you know, assuming I can 
have enough mindfulness power to kind of overcome my addiction to feelings, and I can make a cold calculation, calculated decision. I mean, that's the closest humans get to free will. But where did those options that we chose from come from? You know, they floated up from nothing. Where do our preferences come from? We don't decide what we like, you know? And, and so it just, when you peel back this onion, the sense of volitional, uh, you know, self-determination is pretty slim. It's kind of like a magic eight ball. Yeah. You turn it upside down and stuff just floats to the top. Right. And whatever floats to the top was in there anyway. And this is just this is just what happened to float to the top this time. Can I steal that analogy? You may. Okay, thank you. It's all yours, Barry. Right. I like that. All right, so we're at nine. Should we wrap it up?